Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Mishika Mehrotra graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in Psychology from the University of Toronto in Canada. Her undergraduate research examined the social and cognitive antecedents of children's moral emotions and pro-social behaviour. She's now pursuing a PhD at Cambridge as a Gates Cambridge Scholar under the supervision of Professor Claire Hughes at the Centre for Family Research. Her research interests include finding ways in which parents and caregivers can promote children's cognitive development and school readiness all topics that we are absolutely fascinated in at Tilled Up Education. So hello, Mishika, how are you? Hi, Kathy. I'm great. How are you? Well, I'm very, very excited to talk to you today. You're going to be our researcher of the month for the month of June, which is very exciting because we heard you were doing some very, very interesting work on mealtime conversations. Isn't that right? That's right. Thank you so much for having me and featuring my work. This is very exciting. So your PhD is going to focus on the link between the development of executive functions, as they're called, and parent-child conversations at mealtimes. Tell us a little bit about what we mean by executive functions and what role we know that parenting can play in their development. So executive function is kind of an umbrella term that includes all the higher order mental processes that help us manage our thoughts and behavior to meet the demands of a situation. So this would include things like overriding your dominant impulses if you're trying to achieve a goal or, you know, shifting or sustaining your attention as needed or holding or updating information in your mind. So as we can expect, these executive functioning skills predict a whole range of outcomes for children, including their social understanding and they relate to fewer behavioral and mental health difficulties as well. And they also relate to children's academic achievement above and beyond measures of general intelligence. So executive functions, they have a genetic component and they're mostly related to the workings of the frontal regions of our brain. But they are particularly susceptible to environmental influences, especially in early childhood when these neural networks are quite plastic and flexible. So parenting can play a big role, especially in early childhood. Now, a lot of research has shown that just parenting that is characterized by warmth and positive affect and where parents are sensitive and responsive to children's needs, those children tend to have better executive functioning. And sensitive caregiving can also buffer the negative effects of a temperamental risk for poor executive functioning. So parents can play a big role in that sense. And Mashika, when you talk about sensitive parenting, some people might conflate that with, you know, being very gently spoken and sort of soft in your parenting. But actually, you know, there's room to be authoritative within that. It's it's more about attuning to the needs of your child, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> yeah, by sensitive, I'm not necessarily referring to the tone in which you engage with the child. 
like you said, it's extremely important to be in tune with what the child needs and adjusting the level of support that you offer to the child and kind of support the child's autonomy as it develops along with other skills. So when I say sensitive, I guess it just means being aligned with what the child requires from you and being responsive in the support that you provide to the child. And I'm already thinking about some of the barriers to that. You know, I think increasingly we're seeing parents who might be on their phone when, you know, a child is trying to get their attention in the playground or during play or in the supermarket. And there are barriers to that sort of attunement because it does require a sort of attention, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, that's right. So technology can become a barrier in that sense if it interferes with parents being responsive to their children's cues and being able to provide sensitive caregiving in that sense. That's true. What you just said as well reminds me of Claire Hughes's research at Cambridge as well, where she talks about parental responses in play. I'm sure you're very familiar with all of that research, but parents just, I think it's autonomy support, it's called, where you're sort of just sitting back a little bit, letting your child take the lead, all that lovely kind of interaction that I think parents don't really maybe consider as being very powerful, but it really is. That's right. So autonomy support is kind of a way of assessing how parents scaffold their children's interactions with the environment around them. And yes, Professor Claire Hughes has looked at some short and structured tasks in the lab where we observe families and they engage in some sort of play, either free play or they're working on a problem-solving activity. And just parents being able to adjust the level of support that they provide to the child, depending on how competent the child is, and pulling back support when it's not needed relates to children's executive functions and how they develop. So tell us about the gaps that you identified in current research that you hope to you know, fill in with your PhD. So much of the current research linking parent-child interactions to children's regulatory development and the development of their executive functions has focused on broader positive parenting dimensions, like I mentioned earlier, like warmth and positive affect and sensitivity. And parental talk has kind of been relegated to the domain of language development So the link between parental talk and children's regulation or executive functions is yet to be explored. And even when parental talk is studied in relation to children's cognitive development, most studies focus on the quantity of talk, like the length of your utterance or the content of talk, like how diverse the vocabulary you're using is. So the quality of interactions isn't very well examined, which is what I want to look at. And that is why I want to look at how connected or contingent parent-child conversations are. And I also hope to use data at two time points to see how stable the quality of parent-child interactions is over time. So in terms of the focus on mealtime discussions, tell us why that particular context is of interest to you. And also, I'm interested in sort of in terms of your sample, for example, would it be different types of families, diverse family units, you know, families from different cultural backgrounds? How would you sort of account for those differences? Yeah, so mealtimes are particularly interesting to me because Mealtimes kind of provide a natural context for parents to engage their children in extended conversation. 
and you know be responsive to their questions and research has also shown that just having stable and predictable routines relates to children's better executive functioning so i thought meal time would be an interesting context to study and you're right it would be very important to recruit families from diverse backgrounds but unfortunately like because of covid and just because of where we're situated like in cambridge the sample that i currently have is not very diverse in the sense that the proportion of families from varying ethnic backgrounds is not large enough for me to be able to examine any of these cultural differences in a statistically meaningful way but regardless of what families tend to talk about which differs by culture there has been some other cross cultural research showing that even families from ethnic minorities or families from lower socioeconomic backgrounds they also tend to benefit from having stable routines and having positive parent child interactions when it comes to children's cognitive development and is there sort of any previous research looking at the you know gender of the caregiver do dads or moms or you know are there any particular patterns in terms of who leads on questions or anything in that regard so emerging work is slowly starting to focus on the role that fathers play as well but much of the research unfortunately only focuses on mother child diets as far as i'm aware but that usually tends to be more of a methodological concern it's not that people are not interested in studying the relationships that children share with their fathers it's just in terms of availability of data this is what the existing literature has focused on but in terms of what we're looking at we have participants like who are both mothers and fathers so if we have a large enough sample for fathers as well it would be interesting to examine the differences between mother child and father child diets i think and would this be predominantly for the parents of children in the earlier years that's right so this work is part of a larger esrc funded project on children's school readiness so the focus is on children in reception and year 1 so 4 to 6 year old I can imagine how amazingly fun it is to do this actual um research. <laughs> you know, for people who aren't researchers, tell us what that looks like. Is it, you know, do you sit around a dinner table with people? Do you observe them through a screen? Tell us what that would look like in real life. So typically, yes, studies of parent-child interactions and family routines, they tend to be done through short and structured tasks uh, where like they're observed at the labs. or parents like tend to respond to questionnaires or interviews but our study is unique in the sense because we are using the small audio recording and processing device called Lena which we send out to families in the post and then families can put it on the child and children can wear it in the pockets of custom made t-shirts that position the device close to the child's chest and it records conversations of multiple family members all day long up to 16 hours so this way we're able to obtain longer and naturalistic interactions in the family's home environment without being intrusive and making the family conscious of being observed how would you sort of control for the fact that i know you're listening as the researcher so i might suddenly you know try and ask some intellectually <laughs> stimulating <laughs> questions No that's true but I feel like 
that possibility is a much bigger problem when it comes to observing parents mm. and children in short and structured tasks because it would be much easier for you to fake your interaction with your child or pretend for a shorter period of time but by sending out these devices which are not really intrusive in any way and the fact that parents leave it on the child for the entire day as soon as the child wakes up that kind of makes it less likely for it to make parents conscious of being observed so you'll be listening to those conversations but how will you assess the benefits for those children of those conversations So you might hear that they're being valued and heard, but is there any sort of measure in terms of if it boosts their self-esteem or improves their behavior or their academic outcomes, for example? Right. So because of COVID, we ended up designing the whole study to be administered over Zoom. So we meet with children to collect data on Zoom calls and we administer tests assessing children's cognitive abilities and academic abilities. So I'm specifically interested in executive functions. So we play these games on Zoom calls. One is called uh, the head, toes, knees and shoulders task that kind of requires children to uh, focus their attention on the instructions, process some of the changing rules in their working memories and being able to inhibit automatic impulses in favor of a less dominant response. So it taps into all of the major executive functions in the form of a game, which is usually very fun for children, and their performance really varies on it as well. And then we also have a few other tasks assessing children's executive attention, which are also administered on the computer in the form of a game where we record children's score. And there's another task assessing their working memory. And how many sort of children and parents would be involved in the study, Mashika? So this is a larger study and we will have multiple waves of it as well to be able to assess the transition to school from reception to year one. And for the larger project, I think we have over 150 families from the first wave so far. But in terms of Lena recordings, I have 70 families that I will be following up with again. Wow, it sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, I can't wait to to read your doctorate already. So tell us a little bit, you know, in terms of the general literature review in this area, what do we know about the benefits of mealtime conversation and how they could influence children's behavior or academic outcomes in general? So mealtime conversations have been linked with academic achievement in children, and that's primarily because it's a time where parents can kind of engage in extended discourse with their children. So they are much more likely to use uh, sophisticated vocabulary and use sentences that tend to be more complex in terms of syntax, as well as the concepts that they're discussing. So this tends to promote children's language development, which in turn helps them with their reading and writing skills when they start school. And in terms of their behavioral outcomes, it has also been shown that children who have more meals with their families, they have fewer internalizing and externalizing problems. So internalizing problems are things like anxiety and externalizing behaviors are things like aggression or not following rules, things like that. So yeah, mealtime conversations seem to be quite beneficial for children in terms of both their academic and behavioral outcomes. And these are also effects that 
tend to last for a while. Like there was a study that assessed mealtime talk around age four, and they found that it was related to children's vocabularies even six years later. Wow. And presumably, you know, parents are talking about, we might just imagine they're talking about things like how was school today? How how do you feel? Children are talking about friendships and difficulties and whether they like someone or don't or whether the teacher likes them or what they're doing well in or stories about what happened in the school day. And presumably you're looking for those themes as well within the narratives that you'll collect. So I'm specifically more interested in the quality of interaction. So I want to look at how contingent parental talk is on what the child is saying. So I want to see that the parent is not just talking at the child, but like they're responding, they're actually responding to what the child is saying. So how thematically or semantically related their conversation is. So, you know, in terms of the content of what they talk about, that seems to vary with culture and with socioeconomic backgrounds. So my interest lies more in how synchronous the talk is between parents and children. And that way we're like focusing on the quality of their interaction. And I'm sure everyone listening to this is wondering what optimal might look like. So perhaps this is something you haven't established yet, but you know, you're looking for that sort of attunement in the conversation, presumably, and how the parent is really listening to what the child is saying and maybe potentially using some sort of reflective language. Tell us a little bit about what you'd be looking out for there. Right. So just seeing whether what the parents said is related to the previous utterance or like to what the child said, and I guess whether they're able to elicit a turn from the child as well. Mm-hmm. And in terms of mealtimes, this is particularly interesting because, like you said, families, you know, they tend to talk about their day, they tend to make plans about the future. People also like reminiscing over past events. So these kind of conversations, they tend to elicit more turn-taking as well. And it is also in these contexts, like in the context of telling a story or a narrative, you're also more likely to use like that sophisticated vocabulary and complex syntax that tends to promote these academic attainment outcomes for children. And how might uh, mealtime conversations impact on children's self-esteem? How do those two things kind of relate to one another? So I am aware of a study that found an association between mealtimes and children's self-esteem. And the researchers, they suggested that mealtimes, because they're often a time for family members to share their family history, children who know their family stories, they tend to have a higher self-esteem and more positive views of the future, probably because knowledge of the past is related to locus of control which just means that how much sense of internal control the child feels. So the better your locus of control, the better your self-esteem tends to be. So just like mealtimes kind of provide a natural context for families to bring up past stories and their own family history. And that also seems to foster family connection. And I assume that's why it relates to higher self-esteem as well. Now, tell us about that sort of concept of school readiness, you know, what we mean by that and how conversations at dinner time could even could contribute to that school readiness for young children. 
So school readiness, as the name implies, is um, just the skills that children have that enable them to succeed at school when they first transition to formal schooling. So intuitively, you would think that this would mean literacy skills and academic skills like reading and numbers and things like that. But in young children, when they're transitioning to school, it overlaps with their well-being overall because it also encompasses things like their regulation, their behavioral regulation, emotion regulation, and their social understanding. So how well they relate with other peers at school, how well they're able to engage with learning at school and things like that. Another sort of term that perhaps non-researchers or non-educators wouldn't be aware of is the term scaffolding, which I noticed you mentioned before. What does that mean in the context of conversation around that dinner table and how might parents understand more about the value of it? So scaffolding means adjusting the level of support you provide to the child depending on the child's level of competence and the amount of support that they need and pulling back when their skills seem to improve. So at the dinner table, just in terms of slowly building upon children's skills and in terms of promoting their language development, parents can try to talk about abstract concepts and non-present things that tend to go beyond the here and now. For example, you know, making reference to past and future events or giving them explanations of the words that they don't know or the concepts that they're unaware of, of the questions that they ask. And these things, they tend to require like some kind of reasoning and sequencing and engaging your episodic memory. So they tend to help with developing certain skills for children. And these can also be a way in which you elicit more turns from the child. And this turn-taking and having a conversation sort of becomes more relevant in early childhood because that is when children become near equal conversational partners as well, right? So we can imagine what the barriers are about time, technology. What else are you coming across in the literature on, on barriers to rich conversations with our children? That's right. So yeah, a lot of parents, because they're busy with work, they might not be able to make time for dinner with their family. And technology, TV can be a big barrier. And also things like behavioral problems, that seems to be a bigger issue for really young children and toddlers. So things like, you know, getting into fights with their siblings or just playing with your food instead of eating it, that tends to disrupt rituals around mealtimes. And for older children, it could be just general tension at the family table. So all of these benefits of mealtimes only come through if the interactions are characterized by warmth and positive affect. So if you're discussing topics that are inflammatory or like that tend to trigger children, then you won't really reap these benefits of having a shared mealtime together. What about if there's only one parent present? Does your sort of research account for that? Or are you looking at sort of two resident parents having mealtime with their children? So 
being a single parent or having fewer resources in the family has definitely been uh, identified as a barrier to having routines and rituals around mealtimes. Like such families, they tend to report having trouble establishing consistent mealtimes with young children. So in my sample, I don't think there's quite as much diversity in terms of the structure of families, but it is definitely something that's interesting to look at because I'm aware that there's some work suggesting that the more number of people you have at the dinner table, the harder it is for one person to engage in sustained conversation. So it might be interesting to see how the presence of siblings or multiple family members kind of impacts the quality of interactions that parents have with their children at the dinner table. And obviously you're interested in the quality of interaction, but people might be thinking, oh, wh- why is it just mealtimes that you're looking at? What about conversations in the car or other circumstances when you're you know, walking with your child? What is it about that particular time of day or that particular chat over food that makes this a particularly unique context? That's a great question. So Researchers are mostly interested in mealtimes because it just provides a natural opportunity for parents to engage in extended discourse with their children. And there have been some studies that have compared mealtimes with toy play or even shared book reading. And even those tend to suggest that mealtimes have unique contributions to children's literacy development. Now, this might seem a bit surprising because knowing alphabets and spelling feels super important, and it is, but these are skills that can be acquired at school. Many other skills are important for academic attainment, like producing and understanding extended discourse, knowing many words, having knowledge about many topics, and These are skills that are built through interesting conversation and mealtimes are just like a natural opportunity for spontaneous and rich conversations like these. But having said that, I doubt that many of these features are unique to mealtimes. So the key is to just set time aside to have quality parent-child interactions. Studies have found that these benefits of mealtimes are non-existent if children are sitting in stony silence or there's conflict at the table, right? So if parents are unable to share meals with their children, they should seek to create other opportunities where they can engage their child in extended dialogue and turn-taking conversations, whether that's on, you know, like you said, long walks or long drives. It's just that having any routine that provides stability and order to the family life would be beneficial. And it's just that mealtimes are a naturally occurring context for development that most families and cultures share. And studies have suggested that there are no other daily activities that families share as a group that is practiced with such regularity. So it's also like a natural context for you to implement any change that you're thinking of in that sense. And of course, there are plenty of parents listening saying, oh, well, Mashika, I try and get my children to chat and they don't want to or they won't open up. (laughs) So what, what do you think would be your sort of general tips in that regard? Yeah, that's a great question. So there is some work showing that mothers' mental state talk is also associated with their children's mental state talk. So mental state talk is just a measure of how much we talk about thoughts, desires, and emotions. So parents could try increasing their frequency of mental state talk. 
as well. And like I mentioned earlier, there's this thing called decontextualized language, which means, you know, talking about the past and the future and abstract ideas, because uh, talking about these things tends to elicit more turn taking from the other side. And just having positive interactions is also key. So if you know that there's a topic that the child is like particularly sensitive about, like their grades, for example, those kind of conversations are best reserved for after dinner. So you're not making mealtime this unpleasant situation that children don't look forward to. It's more likely to become a ritual and something that you do together regularly if it's more fun. So also to like try to keep your questions more open instead of asking questions that tend to <laughs> elicit one word responses like how's your day or oh, good and that's it, right? If you talk about past events, like just narrative talk, or if you try to make plans for the future, those kind of things have been linked with greater turn taking from the child's side as well. So lovely questions like, do you remember the time that we did this? Or what do you think we might do next weekend? And sort of thinking about that kind of, I, like, I love that idea of sort of looking back, but also looking forward. Mm-hmm. That's right. So can you tell us a little bit more about the timeline of your project? Because we're all desperate to read it. It sounds absolutely amazingly interesting. And when are you likely to have even some preliminary findings to share, Mashika? Uh, thank you. Um, well, it's a long process, especially because I'm interested in data from both when children are in reception and year one. Right now, we're in the data collection phase. So we have recordings from the first wave of the study, and I'm hoping to send out the devices again this summer to get our second recordings from the families. And also because I'm interested in the quality of interactions, I expect that the transcription and coding of conversations will take a while. So after data analysis for both time points, I'm hoping to have something to publish at the beginning of my third year. So maybe like 2024. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. Well, we can't wait. And I suppose it's the wrong word hypothesis, but what are you kind of hoping or thinking, thinking you might find out? What, what are you imagining might be a sort of a, what are the assumptions that you're bringing into the study that you're sort of checking? So I expect that parental talk would have unique contributions to children's executive functioning above and beyond broader positive parenting dimensions like positive affect and responsiveness. And I also expect the quality of talk to matter. So contingent talk should predict children's executive functions over and above the total quantity of talk, which is what is typically studied as a predictor of children's cognitive abilities. And I have to ask you about children's chores, okay? So I think a while ago I interviewed a neuroscientist who was talking about developing children's executive function through things like chores and little jobs around the house and how that could actually be enormously helpful for children in lots of different ways. Obviously, preparing for the meal is getting the dinner ready and all those sorts of things. Are you looking at any context around the meal taking? And, and do you know anything about executive function when it comes to doing chores and things like that? You're right. Yeah, mealtimes can be a wonderful opportunity to get the child involved in that routine and ritual and it's also where, you know, the roles in families are established. 
And children learn a lot through not just engaging in conversation, but also through observational learning. So yeah, getting the child to help you with preparing your meal or, you know, the child learning to wait their turn at the table to be served. Those are all of the things that would contribute to the executive functioning as well. For my study, it's not something that I have considered so far, but if this is something that emerges from the data set that we have, it would be very interesting to look into. Okay. Well, look, Mashika, we don't want to wait till 2024 to hear from you again. <laughs> we want to hear how you're getting on. And I'm really interested in even the whole literature of you on this area. Within Tooled Up, I think, you know, we've tried to create some videos just drawing attention to the importance of oracy and the importance of dinnertime meals. So it's very exciting to know that there's someone out there looking at these things in great depth. So thank you so much for joining me and we're delighted to tell the world about your research as part of our Researcher of the Month feature at Tooled Up. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you so much for having me, Cathy. This was lovely. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.